Amen. If you'd uh, open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 12, we are going to uh, finish this chapter and really speak about what has been building over the last uh, 11 and a half chapters. I'm actually going to begin in the Psalms, of which I haven't put them on the screen or, or anything, so I'll just ask you to listen. I'm going to begin in Psalm 6 and read um, a good portion of them. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? For I am weary with my moaning. And every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all of my foes. Deliver my soul from the wicked. Deliver my soul from the sword. My precious life from the power of the dog. Deliver me. Let me not be put to shame. Deliver me from all of my sins. Deliver me from my guilt. Deliver me from my enemies. Deliver me from those who work evil and save me from bloodthirsty men. Deliver me from sinking in the mire. Help us, O God of our salvation. For the glory of Your name, deliver us and atone for our sins. For Your name's sake. O Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. Look on my affliction and deliver me. Deliver me according to Your Word. Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue. Deliver me from my enemies. O Lord, I fled to You for refuge. O give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. For His steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom He has redeemed from trouble. And gathered in from the lands from the east and from the west and from the north and the south. Some wandered in desert wastes, finding no way to a city to dwell in. Hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted within them. And then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and He delivered them from their distress. And He led them by a straight way till they reached a city to dwell in. Let them thank the Lord for His steadfast love, for His wondrous works to the children of men. For He satisfies the longing soul, and the hungry soul He fills with good things. Some sat in darkness and in the shadow of death, prisoners in affliction and in irons, for they had rebelled against the words of God and spurned the counsel of the Most High. So He bowed their hearts down with hard labor, and they fell down with none to help, and then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and He delivered them from their distress. And He brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death and burst their bonds apart. Let them thank the Lord for His steadfast love, for His wondrous works to the children of men. For He shatters the door of bronze and cuts in two the bars of iron. Some were fools through their sinful ways. 
And because of their iniquities, they suffered affliction, and they loathed any kind of food, and they drew near to the gates of death, but then they cried to the Lord in their trouble. And He delivered them from their distress. And He sent out His Word, and He healed them, and He delivered them from their destruction. Let them thank the Lord for His steadfast love, for His wondrous works to the children of men, and let them offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and tell of his deeds in songs of joy. As I was preparing this week, I thought it would be best to begin with speaking God's words, because I think sometimes, too often, pastors say way too many of their own and fill the air with thoughts that are not God's. And I began in Psalm Six and went basically through most of the Psalms, ending with Psalm 107. And you see a consistent pattern over and over again of people in trouble, some by their own choices, some by the choices of others, but in trouble, and whatever the reason, they cry out to God. And even when the people have put themselves in that own situation, He delivers them. And I was studying it, and I began to think that, you know what, in Exodus and all through the Psalms, it doesn't seem like the life of the Hebrew is much different than life for people today. I can see many people just crying out, praying Psalm 6. I fill my mattress with tears. Life is hard. And although we're not oppressed by this powerful political tyrant like the Egyptians were, men and women are without question enslaved to an enemy. And I think it's pretty obvious to anyone and everyone that the world through their music, through their actions, through what they write, through everything, is crying out out of a need, this unrelenting desire and need for Redemption and deliverance. They want a rescuer to take them away, to deliver them from some of their own stupid choices and some from the pain that people have caused them just to be saved from a really bad situation or to be freed from all the brokenness of a, of a broken past. But Sadly, we don't call it what it is. Sin. And people try to analyze it away by reading all these self-help books, and they don't work. And we see because they keep making more self-help books. And they're bestsellers. And we try to medicate this feeling of need and, and wanting to be delivered with substances, thinking that will take it away, or maybe a relationship, and we think that will just fill it, and it doesn't. It's still there. And some try to just ignore it by pouring themselves into their jobs, or pouring themselves into recreation, or pouring themselves into even church activities and religion. And some pour themselves into just material stuff, and it's still doesn't take that need away. And so as today we discuss this final plague, this terrible, 
horrible climax of all of these judgments, I do want to see and experience and look at the joy that results from it. Joy because we see how God freed these Egyptians. And because this is all one story, all talking about the same exact same thing, we see in the Exodus a picture of our freedom. A freedom that is supposed to be not only declared in our life, but lived out and experienced. And I don't know if I see that very often in very many people. And so today we're going to speak about the freedom that is. The freedom that we have. Because some people don't, to begin with, believe that they're even enslaved. Or they ever were enslaved. And for the people who would say, oh, I'm not enslaved, it's like the addict that says, I could stop whenever I want. I just say, okay, well then stop sinning. Good luck. And then there's the people who declare that they're free, but if I'm a betting man, their lives certainly don't look like it. They look like they're in prison. They live lives of fear, sapped of joy for all kinds of reasons. And both lives, whether they're truly free and not living like it is, or they're enslaved, are both connected to sin, this problem that we can't fix with external things. And so my hope today is that we go back to this moment of the Exodus and we see this, this great event of deliverance that signaled this freedom. We go from Psalm 6, where we are crying out for our distress, just as the Egyptians were, in an oppression that they could not fix themselves. They were hopeless, helpless, hurting to Psalm 107 where we are declaring not what God is going to do but what God has done with joy. Exodus chapter 12 is where we're going in verse 29 the 10th plague the 10th and final plague God says this At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants, and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. And when he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up! Go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go. Serve the Lord, as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds, as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. And the Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, We shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up, and their cloaks on their shoulders. And the people of Israel had also done as Moses had told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they let them have what they asked. And thus they plundered the Egyptians. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, 
about 600,000 men on foot besides women and children. A mixed multitude also went up with them, and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. And they baked unleavened cakes of dough that they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened, because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait. Nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. And the time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. And at the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So the same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. And so God, in this moment, in this time, in this instant, gets the credit for everything, for doing it all. And in a moment, in the middle of the night, God Himself goes through the land of Egypt, and strikes down hundreds and thousands of firstborn men, women, children, and animals. And this is without question probably a very fitting judgment, knowing that, and we can't forget, Egypt was the nation that for 400 years enslaved a people, and for the last 80 years, threw the children, the young males, into the river where they would die, drowning or eaten by crocodiles. And it was a nationwide program. It wasn't just the Egyptian soldiers. It was everyone participated in this, all the families of the Egyptians, in this national program of genocide. And now God comes through and in a very tragically ironic way takes their firstborns. And it's sad and very real to see how the sins of the fathers translate over generations as 80 years later they're facing the consequences for what started. And there's not a house, there's not a family where there's not someone dead. Which is, as a parent, but even as a human, horrific to imagine. As they got up in the middle of the night and found their loved ones or their animals passed away. And a cry goes out in Egypt. And this isn't a cry from the people dying. By God's mercy, that happened instantly. But it's a cry of mourning that would be loud in the wailing of people. And it's the same cry. Same word in Hebrew that's used as God describes the cry that the Israelites let out when they are burdened and they get to that point of distress where they don't know what to do and they cry out to God for help for maybe the first time in 400 years. And it says God heard and He knew. And from Exodus chapter 2 where He hears and He knows all the way to Exodus chapter 12 is God Acting. And it's not as if the Israelites the whole time were like, oh, God's on our side. They're silent. The only time they spoke before this time was when Moses went and did exactly what God asked him to going before Pharaoh. And it backfired. Didn't backfire in God's view. Did exactly what he told would happen. But the slavery got worse. The treatment got more harsh. And they 
were broken in spirit and said, you must have done something wrong. And they cried out. And God, despite the fact that they didn't believe that he was working, still delivered them. Now God, I think it's important to note that this whole picture of salvation, the Jews call this the history of salvation. In this whole picture of the Exodus, God never says or commands them to free themselves to the Israelites. It's implied that that's impossible. He doesn't instruct them to fight back. Okay, let's go, go take them off. Go fight the greatest nation in the world right now. He does not negotiate a compromise with this leader and say, here's what I'll give you if you release them. He, in the most powerful way imaginable, crushes the oppressor. And all he tells them to do before he does that is to believe. Well, we want to fight. You don't fight. All I want you to do is believe. Well, let us, let us kill something, someone. You can kill that sheep because that's probably all you're good for. Take that blood and put it on your door and stand back. And I will do the rest. Cover yourself with the blood. Believe that I am powerful enough to save and to destroy. And I will take care of the rest. And he does. God, not the Israelite judges. God, not the Israelites, free. And the same wrath is poured out several hundred years later on a little hill outside of Jerusalem where God once again takes all of the judgments due for a sinful, rebellious world, all the sins of the fathers and their fathers and their fathers, and in one moment pours out all His wrath on another one the Scripture calls God's firstborn. And this time He doesn't defeat Rome and throw out some political oppressor. He destroys the oppressor that truly is the greatest enemy, which is sin. And Jesus, never think that Jesus died on the cross because he didn't say the right things. Or that because he didn't impress the right people. Or that it was some kind of tragic accident because he didn't follow the rules. Never forget that Jesus Christ died on the cross willfully, volitionally, as a substitute, as our Passover lamb to free us. And never forget that God put Him there. Acts 2 says, yes, it was by the hands of sinful men, but it was by the foreknowledge and definite plan of God who put him there, and yes, God killed him as a punishment for our sins because he had none of his own. Isaiah 53 says it most clearly. Speaking of the future Messiah, it says, Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. 
He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. Not will bring you peace. Brought us peace. And with His stripes we are healed. Yet it was the will of the Lord, in verse 10, to crush Him. It was the will of the Lord to crush Him. He, the Lord, has put Him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring and he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. And just as the Egyptians are freed, I mean really freed, we kind of think about this emancipation like political freedom, true freedom in every aspect of their lives. We are made free in the same way by the cross. It's not conditional or temporary. It's immediate and comprehensive. We are free now for those who are in Christ. As the Egyptians walk out, I mean, I can imagine how difficult it was for them to understand that concept. For foreigners, it's all they've known. But they're free now. They're not free slaves. They're free people. They're wealthy people. Wealthier than the nation they're leaving. And they're free to go where they will. They're free to serve. They're free to worship. And they are free to live without fear of that slavery they experienced for 400 years. So many people, and I meet more and more, continue to live and let their lives be governed by that slavery that happened those years ago. It is almost what I... Their identity is built in that crisis, that moment I was defined by. No, the moment you're defined by is the freedom from that slavery on the cross. And I'm blown away so many times and saddened really by how people continue to run back to that because it's the only thing they ever knew. When it's supposed to be dead and buried. Their identity is not in the slavery they had, or even in the effects of the pain. Although those will be there, but they're not governed by it. Freedom means absolutely nothing. You can declare you're free till the cows come home if you don't live like it. If it doesn't so affect your behavior that you live like a free person. Galatians 5.1, that's the second tattoo verse. First one's coming in two weeks. Second tattoo verse Galatians 5.1, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Don't go back again to slavery. Stand firm. But why is it, and I, this is rhetorical, so don't like, well, Aaron could probably answer, but <laughs> why is it that when someone, believer, non-believer, whoever, describes a Christian, Someone who believes in Jesus Christ for their salvation. Someone who believes that they've been freed by Jesus taking their place on the cross, dying the death they should have, and living the life they should have, giving this perfect... Why is it that Christians are never described as free? That's like not even on the top ten list of words. Uptight, stuffy, Conservative, unexciting, boring, party poopers, fearful. Those will make the list, but 
free. No, that's not there. I can't help but think that maybe it's because Christians or those who claim to be are still living imprisoned lives. One thing to recognize is that some people think that their freedom is actually still earned. They still have to work for it. Well, the Israelites didn't work for it at all before or after. God did it all. And yet, so many people I meet continue to work as if they're going to continue to gain God's favor or lose it, not realizing that Israelites were free and accepted and approved, period. We're not uh, free to continue to work for His acceptance. We are free because we are accepted. We don't obey to be accepted. We are accepted and therefore we obey. Freedom does not come from hoping you're good enough. It comes from knowing you're accepted even though you're not. That's freedom. But then there's the people who believe that freedom was just to do what they want. Yeah, I'm free. Now I'm going to sit it up. Free to be. Christian liberty. Do what I want. That's not what the Israelites were free for. In fact, we need to read Exodus a lot more because for ten plagues, Moses came before Pharaoh and he said, Let my people go so they can freely live and do whatever the snarf they want everywhere. No, that was my translation. God's translation is, let my people go that they might serve me. That they might worship me. The Israelites were not free for themselves. They were free to worship God. They were free from having to disobey. Free from being enslaved and oppressed. Romans says it this way. I love it. Romans 8.1 There is no condemnation. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ from the law of sin and death. We're to live the Exodus. Non-stop. We don't continue in slavery to sin, because that's what it is, although people won't say that. Or to live in the slavery of the past. We are free to live a life without slavery and without fear. But how do you do that? Well, here's what it is. I think it's understanding how exactly you're free, and that's where I want to go today. And I pray that this brings you joy. Because the opposite of it is fear. And no one wants to live a life of fear. No one wants to abuse people living lives of fear. We're to live lives of joy and not fear. And here's why. A life of freedom becomes a life of joy because we don't fear missing the mark by perfectly obeying. We accept the fact that we cannot live a perfect life but that Jesus did for us. We accept the fact that we have missed the mark, but Jesus didn't. There's no like, 
I'd missed the mark this day, but then... No, once you miss it, you miss it. That's it. You didn't make it. Newsflash. You're never gonna. We don't fear that our salvation and then really actually God's love is predicated on our perfect obedience. Therefore, we don't get prideful when we obey and we don't despair when we screw up. Because God has already declared, I did it all. I expected that. You're weak and I am strong. You are enslaved and I will free you because you cannot free yourselves. It is joyful to know that God already knows I've missed the mark. But that's why Jesus came, because He didn't, and His life is given to me. But a life of freedom becomes a life of joy because we don't fear now being rejected. We have a Father who says, I know everything that you are, past and present, some of the stuff you don't even know you're going to do, but it's dark, let me tell you. But I see it all, and I love you. Christ didn't die when we were perfect. Christ didn't die when we were better. Christ didn't die when we were on our way. While we were yet sinners, broken, enslaved, hostile, enemies, He died. And if He died to free me, if He is the one who is responsible to free me, then I can never lose that because I'm never the one that obtained it in the first place. And so I'm free to believe that He will never lose me, which is a comforting place to be. And we live a life of freedom. It's a life of joy because we don't fear suffering anymore. We recognize as difficult as it is, especially in our world, that suffering must have a larger purpose. And it's often, maybe all the time, a purpose that we don't understand. And we take joy in the fact that we don't have to, but that God is in control. Because we see our Savior, Jesus of Nazareth, suffering without complaint for something He didn't deserve, for something He didn't do, Silently and willingly. And he teaches us to see God's hand even in suffering and not to despair or freak out that God has somehow run away when it does. We don't embrace suffering. We don't go looking for suffering. Where is the next place I can suffer? Okay, we don't do that, but without question, we don't avoid it. Because we see in the Exodus, we see in Christ that suffering has glory. So we don't fear it. We don't fear it. And it's why James can say, consider it all joy when trials come. And a life of freedom becomes a life of joy because we no longer fear death or judgment. I mean, what's death? I kind of hope I go out in a really awesome death. I've always told my sons, I was like, you know, when I die, if I fell headfirst into like a chipper or a shark attack, that would be cool. It would give them a good story. Like, yeah, my dad's dead. Really? How'd he die? Let me tell you. You know, I'd be like, whoa. Because death has lost its sting. 
I like to live my life by a worst case scenario. I do this with my wife all the time. Something happens, you know, can't pay the bills or whatever it is. And I'm always like, what's the worst that could happen? This is how I work. She's, you know, organizer, needs things structured. Me, whatever. What's the worst going to happen? We lose our house. Okay. I'm okay with that. We've got places to live. They've got boxes you can get to. I mean, who cares? We'll sleep in our car. Well, what if, you know, you, you lose your car? I'll walk. I mean, come on. What's the worst that could happen? Well, you go down the list. And you always get to the worst cases, death. Right? That's like the worst of worst. It kind of ends. There's nothing worse than that. You don't have the opportunity for more worse. So that's it. And Paul says, death, where's your sting? Because death, I get to be with Jesus. So it's really not that bad of an option. But while I'm here, while God wants me here, I look forward to that joy, but I still have joy in my life. And I don't fear judgment. I didn't feel judgment when the, when the future comes. When I'm dead and I'm judged for God, because I'm like, dude, i got nothing to offer God. you got Jesus, and that's all I'm covered. Amen. And I don't fear judgment now. I don't fear standing before God in the future or now, because I know I put on my Jesus suit. I'm covered in Jesus. Jesus is within me, and he looks down, and he doesn't see the brokenness that is Sam Ford. He sees his son in all his glory and perfection, and he loves me. So I don't have to feel judged like some Egyptian who's like, oh, I hope the gods aren't mad today. He's not. He's not. And then finally, a life of freedom becomes a life of joy because we don't fear the world. We don't feel fear culture. And there's a lot of people who scare the world. Big, bad world. But I don't fear the world because I understand it a little bit better. We understand that, and we understand what I should say, that sin has done to the world and that it's enslaved. So when I see the person indulging in sin, I can have empathy. And I want to tell them about freedom because I know that they're enslaved to their sin. And I don't condemn them or look down on them or think pridefully, man, you're screwed up and I'm really holy. Because when I'm the really holy... I'm still sinful. Mr. Self-Righteous over here still needs freedom too because he's enslaved to his own self-righteousness, which is still not righteousness found in Christ. So I have joy because I don't fear culture. I go into culture and I proclaim the best message ever. You're enslaved. I don't believe you. Doesn't matter. Here's freedom. What do I got to do? Nothing except it. I gotta work and do something. No, it's free. Accept it. Just admit you're broken. I mean, it's like people with out of socket arms trying to get themselves through life and, and lift weights. And you're like, dude, can't you just tell? It's obvious you're broken. But there's freedom from that. There's healing. There's joy. There's peace. And so I see a world that's been perverted because it's been enslaved, and therefore I can see. We can go in there and declare freedom and take those things that are in the world and culture, music, whatever it happens to be, education, work, and I can turn them all to glorify God and worship Him because that's what freeing things is about. Being free isn't, you know, I don't know if you did this. When I was a Christian, you like go through salvation like six times, you know, and every time you do, you're like, I'm throwing away all my CDs. Or, you know, you start throwing all this stuff out and going crazy about because you're feeling all pagan. 
The intent, though, is to take those things and free them to worship God. Now, some of those things, you're not going to redeem your porn, okay, like, oh, praise God. No, that's got to go in the fire. But there's things that can be redeemed for the Lord. Your job is not sinful, although it might feel like it in and of itself. It can be used to glorify God. It can be. So we don't redeem by destroying. We redeem by freeing to worship. Not just freeing for ourselves. That's sin. So in conclusion, you're like, oh, you're not going for an hour and a half? Nope, I'm not. Amazing, huh? Verse 43. <laughs> and the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, this is the statute of the Passover. Now I remind you, they've just left, Right? They're traveling with all these people from Ramses to Succoth. Ramses is where they did all their work, and now they're starting their exodus. They're starting the actual departure. And God tells them one thing, one thing, as they're leaving together. He says, this is the statute of the Passover. little colon, he's going to explain what that is. He's already told us, but he's going to give a little more detail. No foreigner shall eat of it, but every slave that is bought for money may eat of it after you have circumcised him. No foreigner or hired servant may eat of it. He shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. If a stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised. Then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land, but no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. There shall be no, shall be one law for the native and for the stranger who sojourns among you. And all the people of Israel did just as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. And on that very day, the Lord brought the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their hosts. The Hebrews leave with 600,000 men and scholars estimate it's probably about 2 million people. Not all Israelites says that they were a mixed people coming out, which makes sense as he explains the Passover, talking a lot about aliens and strangers and foreigners among them. So this mass of people go out. And he tells them one thing. Instructions that really he's already given Moses and Aaron, so it's not instructions necessarily for them per se, but it is instructions to remind them what is most important. And he says, you will celebrate the Passover. Remember what I told you? Well, we remember that. We've got to celebrate every year. Right. Remind you. The Passover. I know it's a year away, but the Passover is your identity. And the Passover is the declaration of their freedom. And who is doing it. And how it's happening all by the grace of God. And I couldn't help but imagine and think as I was reading this, when someone comes into this community, or any church, but in particular this one, what is the one thing that they lift up as most important? What is the one thing that is key to their identity? The one thing that when people come in, they see. Because we've got all kinds of things going on in all kinds of churches. We've got your music and you got taking communion, you got your black chairs that hurt your butts, and you've got lights, and you've got video, and you've got all kinds of things, and kids' ministry, but when all that stuff is taken down, 
at the core of who we are as a people, what do they see? What do you see? What is your faith? Because if it's not the Passover, the Passover Lamb, Jesus Christ, the Gospel, if the core of your existence, if the reason for you breathing, the reason for you doing anything in your life and the purpose that drives everything isn't the fact that Jesus Christ took your place on the cross for your sins and gave you new life because He had perfection and you have nothing. If that isn't what drives it, then we've lost. We've lost everything. We might as well shut it down now and walk out because we are wasting our time. It is not the music. It is not even the community. It is nothing but the one most important thing, which is Jesus of Nazareth dying on that cross for us. And that is what we should proclaim. And that is when people walk into our homes or interact with our lives or walk into this community of Believers, this is a gathering of the church that's much larger, but when someone walks in here, the cross is what we should be talking about all the time. Because it is the place of freedom. And where there is true freedom, there is joy. There is joy. So I ask you, because I've asked myself these questions, and I'll ask you because we all have to examine our hearts. Let the Lord examine us. What does your life look like? I'm not talking about life of, does it look good or bad? We've already talked about that. It looks bad. What's your life look like? The most important thing. And I'll speak them as if I'm speaking my own questions to myself. Am I someone living with richness, the richness of joy about my freedom? Or am I someone living in fear? Am I someone working for the approval of men? Or am I living a life for the approval of the one who gave me everything? Am I someone confused about what to do next in my life because I've never cried out to God? Or am I certain of what God has asked me to do? Am I someone uncertain if God's going to come through for me and whatever that looks like for you? Or am I confident that the same God of the Exodus who has proved Himself time and time again, even when I can't see it, even when it doesn't look like things are working out on the horizon, I know I'm confident because He has always been faithful that He is going to come through. Am I someone governed by my sinful slavery past, who can't let it go, who can't let it die, who can't start walking away from it, just as the Israelites moved away from it more and more and more and more as they lived? Am I someone condemning those left in Egypt? Or am I crying out to them to be free and inviting them to join? Or am I someone dwelling with some sick sense of entitlement about what God has not done for me? Blinded to what God 
which should cause me joy, has already done. Psalm 118 says this, and I pray that when we see what God has done, it does cause us to thankfully sing, as Psalm 107 talked about. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say His steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say His steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say His steadfast love endures forever. Out of my distress, I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. We'll take communion as we do every single Sunday because we are so committed to remembering our Passover, our moment of freedom. And I pray if you are enslaved to either self-indulgence or self-righteousness, you will confess that today. That you will declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. That you believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead and you will be saved. And please join us in celebrating with joy what God did to free us from the brokenness of this world. That is what is most important. Let's pray. Father God, I declare Your glory. I declare that I am joyful, Lord, because You have freed me. I pray, Lord, that all who can hear my voice will experience Freedom today. Freedom from the slavery of their past, Lord. Freedom not for themselves to sin, but freedom from sin to serve You, of which is pure joy. You give us so much, Lord. You promise us riches upon riches. And I pray, Lord, that You will reveal reveal that to us now. By Your Son's blood, we come into Your presence and we declare that we are enslaved and want Your freedom. In His name we pray. Amen.